Welcome to Connecting the Docs, a podcast from the State Archives of North Carolina, where archivists connect archival materials to fascinating and true stories from the past. We deliver rare and often overlooked topics related to North Carolina's storied history. Now here's your host, John Haran. everyone. This is Connecting the Docs, the podcast for the State Archives of North Carolina. I'm your host, John Horan. In this series, we are examining the true stories behind the fictional bestseller in film, Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens, and has been adapted to the big screen by director Olivia Newman. Of course, there's been a little bit of controversy surrounding the author. We're not going to get into that here, but instead we're going to look at some of the real inspirations for the book. In today's episode, we are taking a look at some of the communities that inhabited the geographical inspiration of the book, Eastern North Carolina, particularly the Outer Banks, Roanoke Island, and the Dismal Swamp. Today, I have on two very special guests, Samantha Crisp. Hi, John. Happy to be here. She is the director of the Outer Banks History Center, and Morgan Johnson. Hello. The oral history assistant. So tell us a little bit more about the book and the inspiration behind this episode. So Where the Crawdads Sing is a book about primarily this girl named Kaya who lives in the Outer Banks and grows up in a pretty impoverished area and it's a coming-of-age story and as a child both of her parents abandon her and so she's left uh, basically to her own devices to kind of make a living for herself and survive in the Outer Banks and in the swamps uh, in eastern North Carolina Um, and so it goes like from her childhood until she's a young adult and um, some of the characters in the book um, are Jumpin' and his his family, and specifically his wife, Mabel. And as I was reading the book, I found those two characters really interesting, and I always wanted to know more about them. And so um, in this episode, we're going to talk about uh, black uh, communities in eastern North Carolina, because Jumpin' and Mabel are black characters in the book, um, and just kind of learn more about what their lives might have been like. So... Um, where the Crawdads Sing, because of uh, the time period, it's in the 1950s, it depicts in part segregation in North Carolina in the 20th century. And so Jumpin' and his family, who play a significant role in Kaya's life by providing her food and clothing and economic support, uh, they clearly live in a segregated community. And so in the novel, the community is described as... A cluster of shacks and lean-tos and even a few real houses squatting about on backwater bogs and mud sloughs. The scattered encampment was deep in the woods back from the sea. There were no roads in Colored Town, just trails leading off through the woods this way and that to different family dwellings. His was a real house he and his pa had built with pine lumber and a raw wood fence around the hard pan dirt yard which Mabel, his good-sized wife, swept clean as a whistle, just like a floor. The coast and the Outer Banks of North Carolina has a rich history of Black-only communities that date back to the colonial era, and stories of these communities demonstrate the resilience required by Black North Carolinians to survive throughout our state's history. Um, Resilience is a strong theme in the novel, although it's more depicted through Kaya's experiences than Jumpin's. The swamp and the landscape are personified in the book and serve Kaya as a parental figure and protector, and they provide her with some of the strength required for her resilience. And this relationship is explained through this quote from the novel shortly after she is abandoned by both of her parents. The sun, warm as a blanket, 
wrapped Kaya's shoulders, coaxing her deeper into the marsh, until at last, at some unclaimed moment, the heart pain seeped away like water into the sand. Still there, but deep. Kaya laid her hand upon the breathing wet earth and the marsh became her mother. And so by studying black communities on the Outer Banks and coast throughout North Carolina's history, we can see a similar story of resilience and connection to the land unfold for black North Carolinians, which goes largely untold in the novel. So before the Civil War, all black communities were being formed in the Outer Banks region. Runaway enslaved people found refuge in the area, creating what came to be known as maroon communities. The Great Dismal Swamp area was a particularly significant area for maroon communities due to its good hiding spots and its size and its natural resources. Because maroon communities purposefully existed outside of normal society, quote unquote normal society, there is not a clear picture of what life was like exactly there. In the early 2000s, Dan Sayers, an archeologist and professor at American University, conducted some of the earliest archeological research in the Dismal Swamp in an effort to learn more about these communities. Until that point, many researchers saw the swamp's volatile nature as an insurmountable hurdle to archeological research. Sayers persisted and through years of archeological digs and various dating methods, unearthed a timeline of the people that lived there. Before the mid 1600s, the swamp was inhabited largely by Native Americans, but by the 1680s, indigenous artifacts became scarce. Sayers found that after that point, when Maroons flocked to the area, they took the tools left behind by indigenous residents and adapted them. Sayers also found evidence of at least seven Maroon cabins dating from the 1600s through the 1800s. By the 19th century, taking refuge in the swamp became more dangerous as local development and lumber companies began to encroach upon the land, making it more accessible to hunters who made money from recapturing escaped slaves. So we learn more about these slave hunters through an account from Frederick Law Olmsted, who was, of course, the famous landscape architect of Central Park, the U.S. Capitol grounds, and here in North Carolina, the grounds at the Biltmore Estate. He was commissioned by the New York Times in the 1850s to travel to and write an account of slave states. And in some of these writings, he provides a grim look into the slave hunting business that grew to disband these maroon communities in the Great Dismal Swamp. Olmstead describes learning about these hunters from Joseph, a local enslaved person, and Joseph explained to him that maroons who took up employment with local farmers always ran the risk of being betrayed to hunt. Maroons would be hunted by dogs, especially trained to hunt humans, and they were often shot by the hunters. And Joseph explained that many maroons would rather be shot than forced back into enslavement. If a maroon was caught alive, they would be imprisoned and advertised, and if after a year no one had claimed the person, they would be sold to the highest bidder at a public sale. Some oral histories from our collections demonstrate the significance of the Outer Banks and the North Carolina coast in escaping slavery. Marilyn Morrison and Jemaine Gillis, who are sisters and members of the Roanoke Hatteras tribe, recall stories in each of their interviews about Haven Creek Baptist Church in Manio, which was founded by their ancestor and served as a safe haven on the Underground Railroad, giving it its name. Morrison notes the importance of having these safe havens near the water and the dismal swamp, which could serve as escape routes for runaway slaves. Well, I'll say it like this. I think there was a reason for Zion Hall Berry, Reverend Zion Hall Berry, to found those churches near bodies of water. Uh, those bodies of water were 
as I see it, um, used as possible escape routes for the slaves. Uh, Dismal Swamp, the closest church or churches to the Dismal Swamp is uh, Antioch Baptist Church in South Mills, which he founded, and Zion Bethlehem, which he founded. And when they got close to the swamp, they had places where they could hide. Now, I, I feel that because they were very selective about the Dismal Swamp community, uh, because they didn't let any, any, really, they didn't let whites in. The whites took the better land for themselves and gave us the swamp, and we still survived with as little as we had. I think it's interesting there. She's talking about this, the swamp as a as a place where you know they they wouldn't let whites in. And according to the the discussion earlier about the archaeologist, it sounds like it's pretty difficult to get in and out anyway. So I think that's really a fascinating point to kind of underscore that the book kind of shows how um, the, the Kaya, this white character, is kind of taken in and embraced by the swamp. But it seems that the reality is that it was African-Americans who were taken in and embraced by the swamp and sort of the, the nature kind of preventing these hunters from finding them in many cases, certainly not all cases. I mean, that's just unfortunately the truth of it. But it's just as fascinating to me. I don't know what you two think about that. Yeah, when I was reading about Dan Sayer's work doing some archaeological digs in the area. All the kind of reports and articles I read on that definitely emphasized how difficult it was to just traverse the landscape. Um, stories about research assistants getting stuck in the mud and there's snakes everywhere and all kinds of wildlife that just make it really difficult to survive. Because, I mean, imagine you're trying to build a house and live in a swamp. So, yeah, I think the the landscape definitely gave them an advantage in terms of being able to hide, but was also quite difficult to survive in. That's a good point. You don't want to romanticize it. It's tough to find people, but it's got to be even harder to live in. So Morrison, elsewhere in her interview, also explains the role the church played in assisting runaway slaves to freedom. I think his interest was trying to help the slaves escape because that's how Haven Creek got its name. And that's uh, coming from the, the history of Haven Creek. And it said that they will, the women will sew a message in the quilts and throw it across the fence. And as people coming through town read the message in the tent, it, uh, on the, uh, read the message on the quilt, which was hanging across the fence, they will carry that message to the slaves. Uh, and these slaves uh, were informed when you crossed the creek. So the Croton Sound was not as wide as it is now. It was more so like a creek. When you cross the creek, you'll find Sweet Haven. Sweet Haven was Haven Creek Baptist Church, and that's where they hid until they uh, could find freedom. Uh, I'm also told that they really called that area California because they it was so far from wherever they were coming from they thought they were in California and to this day they still have a section called California right there in the town of Matteo. What sticks out to me is the, the names you know California being the last thing we hear there but 
I'm interested, you know, in the origins of names. It just always fascinates me. And so you call, this, these, these groups of people, you said, called maroon. And I wanted to know, what's the origin of that? That's a great Do question. I don't actually know why that um, terminology was, was used for these people. Yeah, I don't, I'm not familiar with that either, unfortunately. But John, to your point about names, especially in the Black community on Roanoke Island, even today, there's kind of this long legacy of names of different neighborhoods and, and areas being passed down mostly through oral tradition and not necessarily, you know, officially appearing on any maps or anything like that. And I know that here in Manio, in one of our sort of historically primarily Black neighborhoods, there's a road that everyone's always called Good Luck Street. And in, I want to say, the 90s, maybe, um, that name was officially changed. I don't think it was ever, you know, on like DOT maps or anything identified as Good Luck Street, but that's what everyone knew and called it. And sometime in the 90s, it was changed to Sir Walter Raleigh Street, um, or a variation of that. And that was a big controversy in the community because that was a, the name Good Luck was very sort of intrinsically tied to these sorts of feelings of, 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 uh, black traditions coming from slavery and coming from freedom and, and being identified with this idea of good luck. So it's something that you see repeated kind of throughout history, this, this uh, kind of concept of names growing out of transient communities that come here to either escape or find freedom or, or anything like that. And I think kind of on that note of issues with record keeping is that that's something that these two interviews really underscore is that as these women were trying to research their families and their ancestry in that part of the state, obviously Native Americans and Black Americans were not um, treated as kindly in our traditional record-keeping systems and often don't appear in them at all. Or if they do, it's, you know, not in as much detail as white Americans would be. And so I think that's a good reminder of something that they expand upon in these interviews a lot as well. It's another key point to underscore is that there's a, a lot of gaps, of course, in, 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 the, in the archives in general. I mean, j not just in North Carolina, but certainly in North Carolina. And most of those gaps overlap with uh, a lack of institutional knowledge on you know, marginalized communities and, and people of color. So in her interview, Jemaine Gillis describes the Great Dismal Swamp and how once a person made it across the sound, they felt free. Okay, they were slaves. They were runaway slaves, okay? This was like maybe during the Civil War, after the Civil War, when slaves were trying to make it to the North. It was said back then, or we were always heard, that Manti the Roanoke Island was a safe haven. If they made it over from the mainland, which was like Hyde County, across the Sound to Manteo, nothing could be done with them. Okay, so from that point, those who didn't stay there moved on or wanted to move on. Waterways in eastern North Carolina served as escape routes down the entire coast. And this is demonstrated in another interview with Lisa Jones, the director of the Washington Waterfront Underground Railroad Museum. In her interview, Jones explains the importance of waterways in southeastern North Carolina in the Saltwater Underground Railroad and names a few local free black communities from the time period. From about 1790, when General George Washington declared um, the Port of Washington a major port, there have been shipping industries on that river from about 1790. And many of those industries would send, let's say, beeswax, cotton, um, tobacco, all kinds of products to Great Britain. 
South America, France, you name it. And many um, freedom seekers here could actually get on those ships with the help of abolitionists. So here in Washington, when we talk about the Underground Railroad, we're not specifically talking about states in the North or Canada. We refer to the Saltwater Underground Railroad, uh, the Caribbean islands that did not participate in slave trade. And because we would, um, for example, send pork products to the West Indies, and they, the ships would return with maybe molasses, tropical fruit, and sugar. Working with abolitionists, if a freedom seeker could get on those ships, you not only could go to states in the north and Canada, you could go to Florida. Um, there was a town called St. Mose, named after um, St. Teresa Mose. This 13th edict of Spain allowed that land to be given to free blacks. And you could go there as well. You could go to Mexico. We traded with places in Mexico. So you not only could go to north and the uh, states in the north and Canada, you can go to the south, you could go to Mexico, you could go to Cuba. You could also go to any of those countries that those merchants traded with. And working with abolitionists, they would sometimes um, be able to help you get on those ships. There were many abolitionists that came down, let's just say from Philadelphia, Wil uh, Wilmington, Delaware, that would come here to get lumber. And many of those abolitionists would allow you to get on the ships. It was a carefully crafted network of people being able to do uh, things um, not easily detected by the, by the eye, as we say. There was a language that developed around that. That was, um, we called them codes. And a code could be food, it could be clothing, it could be songs, it could even be a nursery rhyme. But they all contained information that you needed to know about trying to get a ship or trying to get to your freedom. And many free blacks in Washington, if you were an enslaved person, um, you would not go to live amongst the free blacks here in the city of Washington proper. First place they're going to look for you. But there were many neighborhoods that were owned by all free blacks. Um, the town of Aurora, which is about 30 miles from here, um, um, before the Civil War, that was called Betty Town. That land was owned by all free blacks. A community about three miles from here, Keysville, was owned by all free blacks. They were rural areas, so with the help of abolitionists, you'd be able to get out to those areas. But if you wanted to leave quickly and efficiently, because those were the safer routes as opposed to overland routes, this river was the place you wanted to, to attempt to leave from. I think that's really interesting. I mean, you know, you, you learn about the Underground Railroad for sure, and you, it's always an overland route that gets you into Ohio, into Pennsylvania, on your way up to Canada and to get out of the United States and out of certainly the South through those routes. I don't know how many people know about sort of the Saltwater Underground Railroad, and I think that's really fascinating. Do, do either of you know more about, about that particular way of escape? That was something that was pretty new to me, too, while I was um, doing the research for this podcast. I really appreciated this clip from this interview and getting to learn more about it. I think I knew generally, like, okay, that was one way that people would, enslaved people would escape was by ship. But um, I definitely did not know North Carolina's ties to it. And what I, what I like about this clip, and also I think the Jermaine Gillis clip that we heard earlier, is that they really underscore this kind of feeling of freedom associated with 
these areas in eastern North Carolina or the role of these locations as like symbols of freedom. And to tie it back into the book, I think that's something that Kaya experiences a lot as she's growing up is feeling freer when she's just hanging out on the land by herself. And again, we don't really get to get much insight in the book into the experiences of these black characters and like the history behind why they're there, perhaps, and their ancestors were there. And so I think getting to explore these areas more in this, you know, getting to explore that region of the state more through these interviews is really eye opening for me. Yeah, I think that this particular interview, I mean, you, you know, you can learn about something in an abstract way, but to hear the names of the places, to hear the town of Aurora, and then it used to be called this, and people would go out this way and actually get sort of these very specific physical locations. I think it's really terrific, and, and, and uh, th- I really commend people listen to that whole interview. It's really uh, something that's eye-opening. Um, maybe it shouldn't be eye-opening, but it is, and it's, I think it's fascinating. What do you think, Sam? I agree with both of you on all counts. <laughs> um, yeah, and you know, and the Outer Banks region in particular, it, 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 even outside of the the Black community, all of the all of the kind of people that have lived here and made their homes here for the many generations will, you can really get a sense of their specific ties to the land and their feelings about the land that they grew they grew up on and that they inhabit. Um, and they, you know, speak about it very protectively and they speak about it very proudly to, you know, tell people that they're, they've been able to carve out a life in these very isolated regions and these very, um, you know, in many ways kind of hard scrapple um, areas to, to, to make a home in. Um, so, so this whole notion of just kind of sense of place is, is really particularly strong on the North Carolina coast, I've found. Yeah, for sure. It's, it underscores a, a level of resiliency that is tremendous. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, so the, these are, this has been a great insight in, into this, the, the past of these oral histories that we've clipped here and, and then also from the archaeology and other pieces that, that we've shared today. And so uh, we've taken this story uh, of these maroon communities right up until the Civil War. We haven't gotten into the Civil War yet, um, so it presumably changed a lot, if not everything. Got a hankering for history and you want to know more? The State Archives in North Carolina has three regional facilities to better serve you and all your history needs. Check in and check us out at the Outer Banks History Center in Manio, the State Archives in Raleigh, or the Western Regional Archives in Asheville. Thank you for your support. And now, back to the show. So as you mentioned, the Civil War presumably changed everything in regards to these communities, and it, it did change a lot of the circumstances around them. So as this enslaved people were emancipated during the Civil War, more freed black communities sprung up on the North Carolina coast. So in the Outer Banks region, the Union Army helped establish the Roanoke Island Freedmen's Colony. So when the Union took over Confederate fortifications on Roanoke, they emancipated enslaved people on the island who had been sent to help the Confederates set up the island as a place for them to start a new life. Hundreds of runaways began flocking to the island and helped the Union rebuild forts in Roanoke, Hatteras, and New Bern, and they worked as cooks, blacksmiths, and in other roles, and some even served as spies, scouts, and guides for the Union Army. And by 1864, over 2,000 freed slaves lived at the Freedmen's Colony, and the community had flourished to include a church, multiple schools, and a sawmill. 
schools were built. Uh, teachers came from the north. At one time, there were uh, seven African-American female teachers on Roanoke Island. Uh, during, like I said, during the day, the kids went to school and the night, the adults went to school. So the first time in their life, the young and the old were taught to read and write. <clears throat> now these were missionary teachers, so their textbook they taught from was the Bible. Uh, throughout generations, the story of the Bible had been passed on by word of mouth, uh, stories like David and Goliath, Moses part in the Red Sea. But once these uh, freedmen could read the stories themselves, it became more real to them, and they called that letting in the light. So that was a clip from a 2021 interview with Daryl Collins from the collections of the Outer Banks History Center, and it provides a little bit more information on the Roanoke Island Freedmen's Colony. Uh, Collins was born and raised on the Outer Banks, and he worked here for over 40 years as a historian at the Wright Brothers National Memorial, um, still lives here to this day. And his ancestors came to the area to live in the Freedmen's Colony, which is why he's able to speak so eloquently about it. In 1865, the population of the colony had grown to almost 4,000. And after the war, although the federal government had promised black residents certain rights to the land on Roanoke, all the land was restored to its original owners. By 1866, half of the colony's residents had fled, and the colony was officially decommissioned in 1867. So a lot of the once the war ended, uh, some of the promises made to the Freedman Colony was not kept. So the colony was disbanded. And a lot of the, the, the freedmen actually left and they actually went back to their farms on the mainland and became sharecroppers. They were no longer slaves, but it was probably the sharecropping was just as bad as being a slave. But, but some of the families did stay here, like the Wises, the Bowsers, the Tillets, the Daniels. So some of the families stayed here, and there's quite a number of families on this island today uh, that are descendants of the Freedman Colony. Two things there really kind of stuck out to me. The first is his point about, you know, you're no longer enslaved, but you're a sharecropper, and he sort of slides in there that is not that different. And from our other oral histories that we're doing on uh, integration and desegregation in the schools, in the state, we find quite a number of people who agree with that sentiment. You know, you can't get out of the system of working for the, the, the landowner. It's just a different name now, and it's sanctioned again, you know, and so it's completely, uh, it's just another really fascinating piece of, of American history that I don't think it's a lot of play. Um, and, the, and the second thing kind of goes right at the beginning of his commentary, talking about how promises weren't kept. And that is sort of endemic throughout this whole story, of course. Promises weren't kept to, a, you know, right after the war. Sometimes it took a little bit longer. Sometimes it, 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 uh, it took a while. But it, promises weren't kept seems to be sort of a banner. And, you know, I think the Freedman, Freedman's Colony on Roanoke Island did not last long after. But it, there, there must surely be others in the, in the state. And so what can you tell me more about that? Yeah, so James City was another freed slave community established during the Civil War by the Union Army, but unlike the Roanoke Island Freedmen's Colony, it survived longer into the Reconstruction period. 
Um, and so obviously James City, it's near New Bern, so it's a little farther down the coast, not necessarily in the Outer Banks region. But uh, when the Union Army captured New Bern in 1862, recently freed slaves flocked to the area naturally. And due to this influx, the Union established an area outside of New Bern near the Trent River to be their settlement. Um, and this was on land confiscated from the plantation of Peter G. Evans. And this area became known as James City, named after Horace James, who was the superintendent of Negro Affairs and an agent for the Bureau of Freedmen, Refugees, and Abandoned Lands. By 1865, the population of James City had reached nearly 3,000, and the community continued to grow with schools and hospitals, businesses, and banks built until 1867, when the federal government returned ownership of the land to Peter G. Evans' family. Um, so again, re returning back to this kind of promises not being kept. And so with whites owning land, once again, black residents were forced to pay rent, share crop, or move away. And many chose the latter to move away. And by the 1880s, only about 1,100 former slaves lived in the area. Through the 1880s, Mary and James A. Bryan, the descendants of Evans, who now owns land, continued to hike up rent prices, driving even more black residents off the land. The Bryans refused to negotiate with or sell land to the two residents. Black residents tried to force the Bryans to confront each of them individually in court for rights over their individual plots of land. And the issue was eventually brought to the North Carolina Supreme Court in 1890 in James A. Bryan and Wife versus Washington Spivey et al. The court ruled that based on legal precedent, the James City residents could not demand individual trials and effectively prevented them from being able to gain legal ownership of their individual plots. The court report from the case tells us more about what the community was like at that point. And it reads, quote, that the tract of land set forth and described in the complaint of which plaintiffs seek possession in this action embraces a large village or town situated opposite the city of Newburn on the Trent River known as James City. That said town was settled sometime during the late war between the states and that most of the defendants have resided therein since the first settlement or soon thereafter. That there was, at the time of the institution of this suit, and is at this present time, about 1,500 inhabitants in said James City, and about 400 separate lots or parcels of land, on which there are houses inhabited by families, besides churches, schoolhouses, etc. End quote. So this case is significant for the time period in which it was decided. Um, Plessy versus Ferguson was decided in 1896, and that um, was the landmark case that was the beginning of the formal codification of Jim Crow in the South. This North Carolina Supreme Court decision tracks with other court decisions being made across the country at that time, which limited Black Americans' rights and upward mobility in society. It's fascinating to me that the Supreme this court case is James A. Bryan and wife. Like Mary doesn't get her name into the. I mean, this is, this is another discussion entirely that we I'm not sure is can should have in this space. But it's something that I just stuck out to me. And if you if either of you have any sense of why that is and can explain it to us in a, in a sentence, I'd love to hear it. I mean, I think the easiest way to explain it to you in a sentence was just that women were historically kind of viewed as subservient to their husbands, especially in financial matters and in matters of property. I mean, you know, I'm pretty sure women couldn't apply for a credit card on their own until the 70s. Um, so, you know, we have a lot of these kind of legacies of, um, you know, not just racism, but sexism that permeate our legal system today. So uh, I, I am not at all surprised to see this case referred to as Brian and wife versus using her actual name. 
And what's also interesting is that without this case reaching the North Carolina Supreme Court, we wouldn't have this exact transcript and this really nice description of the community because Supreme Court cases are unique in that they are fully transcribed, but most other court cases would only have a a summary of the verdict. So we're lucky that we're able to read about the community in this transcript. And we can learn more about the community from a research report on James City, which was written by an Archives Research Division staff member, Joe A. Mobley, in 1980. That tells us more about what happened to James City after the court case and into the 20th century. A few other court cases ensued as the residents of James City tried to gain legal ownership of the land, which included a plea to Governor Carr, but none of these attempts were successful. And tensions continued between the residents and the Bryans, and eventually a regiment of troops was sent to the community by the governor to help local officials, quote, enforce the law. And at this point, representatives from the James City community agreed to meet with the Bryans to come to a compromise, and that resulted in three-year lease agreements for residents. And that's a very quick and dirty summary of all the legal battles that ensued during that time period. And following these legal challenges, um, alternatively, in 1893, some members of the James City community reached an agreement with nearby landowner Ralph Gray to buy lots of land. And these lots, totaling 24 acres, became known as Graysville and later Meadowsville. And this area, as well as other plots of land that former James City residents managed to purchase nearby, became known as, quote, the new James City. Although some of these tenants remained in the old James City, the two communities often socialized and functioned as one. In the 1920s, the James City community and other Black residents in the area raised money together, along with the support of the Rosenwald Fund, to build the Atlantic and North Carolina Industrial Institute. The school operated until 1957, when the state government built a new school, A mid-1920s photograph of what seems to be this school can be found on the State Archives Flickr page where it is described as James City School. Schools like the one in James City and those at the Roanoke Island Freedmen's Colony were vital following the Civil War in helping Black Americans successfully transition into emancipated life after centuries of it being illegal in many places to teach enslaved people how to read and write. Beyond that, such educational opportunities were important in rural and impoverished areas of eastern North Carolina. And this is seen in both Kai's experience in Where the, Where the Crawdads Sing and archival records we have about schooling and truancy in the region, which we'll explore more in the next episode. Following the Great Depression and the growth of industry in other cities, the population of James City dwindled. The last, quote, original resident, William Spivy, left the land in the 1970s. Spivy was a descendant of Washington Spivy, the main dis- defendant in the North Carolina Supreme Court case in the 1890s. Today, James City still has some residents who claim heritage from the original freedmen who settled there in the Civil War. In recent years, the community has suffered various environmental struggles, including severe flooding from hurricanes and water contamination from local pork farms. So by learning the stories of these Black communities in eastern North Carolina throughout the state's history, we gain a clearer understanding of the characters Jumpin' and Mabel in Where the Crawdads Sing, maybe what their ancestors' lives were like, how colored town in the book maybe came to be. And we can see the resilience required for a Black community to survive in that region of the state between treacherous environmental conditions and legal hurdles. And we also grow our understanding of how the land could serve as a refuge and protector for Black North Carolinians, expanding upon those themes we see in the book largely through Kaya, who's the white protagonist. Yeah, it's certainly a a tremendous intro into this section, the series for us. Uh, I'm looking forward to learning more about truancy and education. That seems like a fascinating topic. But anyway, I'd like to thank you both for spending your time with me today. I appreciate your knowledge and passion for the subject. And thanks for connecting the docs for us. 
Uh, so I also want to say stay tuned once again for the next episode where we look into another key aspect of the novel and how it relates to North Carolina history, education, truancy, and the Outer Banks. Thanks again for tuning in. Special thanks to our guests, Samantha Crisp and Morgan Johnson, to our voiceover specialist, Tiana West, to our producers, Brooke Chuka, Shauna Carr, and Josh Hager. And finally, to the voice you hear at the beginning and end of each episode, Judy Allen Dodson. Thanks for joining us this week on Connecting the Docs. Make sure to visit our website, connectingthedocs.podbean.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. If you like this show, you might want to check out our blog, History for All the People at ncarchives.wordpress.com.